Hello! In this episode of Reading Orwell, I catch up with Dr Lisa Mullen, who works in the English faculty at the University of Cambridge. Lisa is very well known for her Orwell-focused research, which most recently led to her editing an edition of Homage to Catalonia, Orwell's Spanish Civil War memoir, for the Oxford World's Classics series. Our conversation starts by considering Lisa's in-process book on Orwell, The Body and Medicine, the title of which is Orwell Unwell. The book will be appearing in due course. There was, unfortunately, a technical glitch with my side of the conversation, which makes the audio a little muffled, but Lisa comes through loud and clear. So you're writing a book about Orwell at the moment, which has got the fantastic title, Orwell Unwell, which must be the title of all Orwell titles. And, you know, brilliant. It's it's such a great title. Could you describe the book and what its argument is and what it's trying to do? Okay, so yes, I mean, it, as you probably guess from the title, um, it's it's about Orwell and illness. So I'm kind of I'm looking at his work, his his kind of his career as a writer alongside what I'm thinking of as a, as a parallel career as a patient, as a, as a medical patient who suffered a lifetime of uh, various different illnesses um, and injuries for that matter. And as you know, he he succumbed to tuberculosis at the age of forty six. Uh, which is very, very young. And it was, the, you know, the end of actually quite a long and painful journey for him, not only through tuberculosis, but through, as I say, various other illnesses. And I think that that really, that really kind of finds its way into his work in interesting ways, partly in the way that he uses metaphors of sickness, metaphors of pathology, of, of kind of unruly, disobedient bodies, and also metaphors of kind of physical disgust as well. That's that's one way that he that he kind of brings his own personal experience into his politics. Yeah, so I think that in the way that he uses illness as a metaphor in his work, it really kind of reveals this autobiographical seam within his writing, which isn't isn't necessarily there on the surface. So do you do you see his political thought sort of being mapped? in terms of the body. Yes, I mean it, the the body for Orwell is really important because that's where truth lies. That's where you will actually find out the truth about things. He talks um about uh, in one of his essays about how how people will understand that fascism is a lie because they'll feel it in their bellies. You know, that's 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 the kind of reservoir of something that's real and that can't be traduced by by kind of rhetoric and propaganda. That, that there is something in the human body which uh, responds instinctively to to truth and falsehood and uh, you know whether whether we sort of take that to be true or not i think that's that's such an important uh, an important way of understanding what orwell feels about the moral issues of his day and the grand moral issues of being a human being is that um, at some level there is something that is absolutely inarguable there is something fundamental about right and wrong about about this this concept that he calls decency which if if your intellect lets you down or is led astray by these by these kind of controlling brains that that are, that are trying to interfere with you then tr- go back to the body think about your senses think about what you're hearing and seeing and tasting and smelling and that won't that you know that will set you right that won't that won't send you down the wrong path when you add into that the idea that but at the same time, the body is this very frail thing. It's a, it's, it's a, something that exists through time. It, it suffers from different kinds of ailments and kind of in, indignities, and and you can see there how then that becomes part that becomes tied up with the sense of 
the threat to truth, the threat to morality, that although it's there in the body, the body is itself a kind of frail thing. And so there's there's always this kind of, there's this conflict there for Orwell. Uh, and this, and I suppose you'd call it a kind of fear, a sort of a, a real sense of existential kind of fear that that the body, which is this reservoir of truth, might ultimately let you down in terms of illness. And so therefore you have to, you have to kind of, you have to worry about that. You have to keep kind of monitoring monitoring that in yourself is your body you know letting you down or is it you know what is it suffering what is it what has its suffering got to do with politics that you're experiencing so you can't you can't separate the two I don't think in at least that's that's what I'm arguing in the book you know I think I think um that's absolutely fundamental to to how he saw his himself as a writer as well that's that's also also it's, it's a metaphor for politics but also a metaphor for the relationship between a writer and the outside world, between experience and literature. He, t- he talks at one point about um, writing a book is a, is a long, exhausting struggle, uh, like, a, like a bout of a, of a serious illness. And it, it, I think that, that that comparison between writing and being ill in some ways, it, it, it's sort of funny. <laughs> it's sort of it's sort of acknowledging what hard work it is, but also I think it's really it's it's it shows how important it was to him. It's a kind of it's a it's a battle for your life. You're you're fighting for your life. It's a it's it couldn't be more important than that. And so you know we see this in 1984, for instance. This is his deathbed novel. He's writing it knowing that he is going to die very soon. His doctors have been unequivocal about that, although Orwell, being Orwell, tries to hold on to to hope as much as he can. But he knows really that his days are numbered and he has this urgent message that he needs to get out. And he he will almost kind of he'll do anything to, to get that book written and typed up, even though, you know, he's making himself iller and iller with the stresses and strains of doing that. So, yeah, so that 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 struggle between life and death and between truth and falsehood between experience and literature uh, are all there I think in the in the idea of illness for Orwell. Could you explain how this emphasis on sort of bodily suffering bodily torment but also the relationship between the body and politics feeds into your interest in homage to Catalonia which you've just edited for the Oxford World's classic range in a really fine edition of the book I mean, maybe you could start by explaining what caught your interest about, you know, homage to Catalonia um, and how the research you've been doing for All Well, Unwell, it runs parallel to it, it complements it. Could you just say a bit more? Yes. Uh, homage to Catalonia is, is All Well's um, book about his experience in the Spanish Civil War. And it's really the turning point, both in his writing and his politics. And he goes to he goes to Spain to fight in the the war against fascism, because he's an idealist. Because he he believes in this the, the big idea of of you know fascism is bad. I will give up my life to to defeat it. It's it's that important. And as far as he's concerned, it's very simple. When he arrives, he he sees the revolutionary Spain of the of the of the republican kind of communist revolution as being this idealized par- paradise. And he he will, as I say, he'll die to, to defend it. But as he experiences the realities of that war, he experiences them in and on his body. Uh, he he finds that it's not as simple as he thought it was. It becomes much more complicated. Good and evil get get muddled up together. And uh, you know, uh, and finally, he he also you know finds himself being uh, nearly fatally injured, and and therefore the the, the life and death struggle, which were which were an, a theoretical ideal when he set off for Spain 
suddenly become very, very urgent and and poignant and and pointed. And he never he's never really the same again. I think he, everything about his his politics and the way he approaches the act of writing becomes much more focused and much more urgent, but also you know much more subtle, much more conflicted. He's he becomes aware that the the, the simple pieties that he that he thought he was fighting for were never were never as simple as as he as he expected. Yeah, I mean, in the middle of that book is is the body in a sense, isn't it? In 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 Orwell's encounter with the bullet that almost kills him. And and it really is this sort of powerful, extremely powerful moment, um, where where everything is brought immediately home to him in the physical intimacy almost of, of that wound. It's an, an extraordinary moment in the book, isn't it? Yes, it re- it really is. And it it's it's completely different to the other ways. I mean all through the book his the, the the body of the soldier has been really foregrounded. The suffering of soldier in a in a kind of muddy, cold, freezing t- trench where you're you're hungry and you've you've got lice crawling all over you and you've got rats nibbling at your the leather of your belt and so on. There's a, there's a lot uh, about being a soldier which is very kind of physically stressful and and kind of disgusting for Orwell. But that moment where the bullet hits him in the throat and it's millimeters away from from hitting a major artery, which would have killed him almost in, instantly, all of that stuff kind of gets gets blown away. That he has this it's almost an epiphanic moment. It's almost a kind of a moment of clarity, a moment where his time stands still. And he describes it as being a moment where everything goes quiet. Uh, and and he's he feels although he's surrounded by people and they're they're, they're kind of leaning over him and putting him onto a stretcher and, and there's lots of hustle and bustle. The way he experiences it uh, is as a kind of a moment of communing with the important things of life. So he thinks about his wife um, and he thinks about um, very specifically about the world of nature. You, you have this image of him on on the stretcher being being carried away and um, he's under some trees, these silver poplar trees with their their um, branches hanging down and the, the leaves brush his face. And he, he says that at that moment he felt what a wonderful thing it was to be alive in a world that had these trees in it. It's it's almost it's almost a you know we, we would think of that perhaps as a moment almost of kind of ecological awareness where suddenly he feels really sort of stitched into the natural world in a very intimate very physical way but also in a way that that suggests to him a, a kind of transcendence a kind of, it's a kind of out of body experience as well as a very intimately embodied experience it's it's kind of both of those things together and it's it's a moment of rebirth it's a moment of hope in spite of everything, a moment of realisation, uh, again, of this, this physical sense of what's really true, what's really important. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazingly moving moment, which uh, he describes beautifully. It's, it's, a, it's unforgettable, I think, when you, when you reach that point in the, in the book, you really feel that you're right there with Orwell at this intimate moment and understanding this near-death experience from the inside. He expresses it so beautifully. It's um, it, you know, it, it's it's a kind of it's the still center of that whole book, and I, I would argue that it's the still center of the whole of Orwell's writing. That's where everything changes. Nothing's ever the same again after that. The the power of the prose in in that moment is is in some ways just a sort of local sign of something that's true for so much of his work, but but not so often appreciated. Which is that, and, and it sounds almost stupid to say, but he's just such a brilliant writer. 
you know that that it's weird, isn't it? Someone how of Orwell's stature is known and appreciated so often for his ideas, and far less for or far less often for his the actual style of the prose that communicates the ideas. Why why do you think Orwell's writing has you know in general been sort of approached mainly in terms of ideas as opposed to style? Because I know in the in the introduction to your edition to to Homage to Catalonia you. You devote a section to the style and the stylistic sort of properties of the writing. Yes, yes, I think it's important to 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 recognise that. And I mean, to answer the first part of your question as to why he's often thought of just as this kind of quotable, he's a kind of memeable writer. He, he's because he's a very good writer. He can express things very pithily and and um, make ideas seem. He has a way of writing a, a kind of pithy summation of a political idea which makes it seem obvious which makes it seem inevitable somehow so that's very attractive for anyone who's looking for a, you know a quotation that will encapsulate something um so he, he he's he's known to many people just you know as as a meme you know as a as a picture of his face with a kind of one line quotation beside it and i really feel that that's a shame because part of the pleasure of reading Orwell is that he's you know, he's, he's tremendously good company. You know, he's a very good writer. He tells a great yarn. And he he has this um, very uh, highly patterned and, and, and crafted way of putting things together, which he develops over time. And you can really see that if you read all of his uh, books from, from his earliest novels onwards and his journalism as well, you can see him working out how to do this almost in real time. You know, he, he really thinks about it. And in Homage to Catalonia, there's there's some wonderful ways that he uses recurring images to kind of pattern the text. Um, there's the idea of rats, which comes up in, in several different moments where it begins as just a kind of jokey reference to, you know, oh, there, there are rats in the trenches. That's that's horrible. But that's all part of being a soldier to kind of, you know, using the rats then as a way of, of memorialising one of his fallen comrades who, who used to talk about rats. And then finally, there's this kind of horrific sense of the rats crawling over the sleeping soldiers. And that's obviously very much something that foreshadows the, the, the phobia of Winston Smith towards, that he has towards rats in 1984. So there's, there's things like that where you, you just notice those images go by. But the one that really interests me most is, is the two handshakes that kind of bookend this this account of Spain in on, on I think the very first page or perhaps it's page two of the book he he describes this um this handshake that he has with an Italian militiaman who he greets as a comrade in arms as as a as a, a, a kind of a, a soulmate in a way they don't speak each other's languages but they're both fighting on the same side they meet in the offices of the of the place where they're they're being kind of recruited uh, and they're about to go off to to war and they'll never see each other again, but they share this moment of, of complete comradeship. And that's that's expressed through a handshake. In a way, that handshake kind of reaches through the whole book to, to arrive at a, another handshake at the end of the book, where Orwell shakes hands with a colonel who he's gone to see to try to get his friend out of prison. His friend has been wrongly imprisoned and Orwell has made it his his mission to try and do something about that because he's very worried that his friend will be summarily executed um, as, as, the, as the outcome of this imprisonment. And he has to kind of lie and, and kind of finagle his way into the offices of this colonel and he, it all has to be done in a very hush-hush manner. 
And and finally, the, the colonel agrees to help him as best he can, and they, they seal the deal with a handshake. And that's a handshake that is a moment of connection in cynicism, in, in, a, in a kind of understanding that, you know, we live in an imperfect world, that the politics of the situation are terrible, that we will, again, find a kind of agreement, a, a kind of sense of comradeship within that. But the idea of us being simple comrades in a, in a simple war against fascism has disappeared. It's way more complicated than that. And those, those two handshakes at either end of the book are there deliberately, I think, to, to, be, to, to exist in contrast with each other and to, and to explain in a very economical way what has changed for Orwell between those two incidents. I completely get what you're saying about the handshakes. I mean, for me, the, I, I've always seen those handshakes in relation to the handshake. Winston Smith and O'Brien share in 1984 and and for me I've always read it as the kind of the terrible sort of sequel to those handshakes in that it it means so much to Winston to shake the hand of O'Brien as he leaves his apartment and to feel like he has a comrade only for it to be revealed very soon after as a lie and it's just it's just awful Particularly, if, and you know, I mean, it, it, it's awful anyway, but, but it, it gains awfulness if you've read Homage to Catalonia for precisely the reasons you've been outlining. So, yeah, so I, I love that reading of the book, the sort of the book ending of handshakes. I'm trying to think at the moment if there are any other handshakes in Orwell. I, 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 think, I think we should, we should make it our mission to, to find all the handshakes in Orwell. And, and to and to find out what's what's going on there, I think it's because, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, we live in a world where handshakes no longer happen, <laughs> and so it's sort of it's it's made it, you know it makes you think actually about what the symbolism of that is. Again, it's the touching of the body, you know, in the same way that the the fronds of the silver poplars touch Orwell's face in that in that kind of personal way. A handshake is a very personal, you know, encounter. It's 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 a sign of trust. Uh, which is completely embodied. It's it's just it's a gesture. It's, it operates outside the realm of words and and so on. And so, therefore, according to Orwell's way of looking at the world, that should have a truth to it. And the idea that that should be corrupted is is has a kind of terrible poignancy, a terrible tragedy to it. Which uh, you know, as you brought out really brilliantly, I hadn't really thought of that about 1984. I think that's such a great point. I think. Um, it, that's exactly why that moment when they shake hands and you, you as a reader you know he's doomed you know this is this is a disaster this is this is not going well <laughs> there's something very very wrong here and isn't it just after that as well where we see we see Winston talking about he, he's so tired and he looks at his hands and it feels like his hand is disappearing it's transparent it's like jelly yeah 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 he's gelatinous with fatigue isn't he yes yeah, so it's almost as if the hand that has that has shaken O'Brien's hand has been kind of infected with something that's made it kind of lose its corporeal uh, kind of solidity in a way yeah yeah he's, he's kind of spectralized by it you know in a way he's sort of ghosted and, and, and also ghosted in all sorts of other ways you know O'Brien now and, and um, Mr Charrington then, then sort of don't want to associate with him in the way that they did before I mean as we're talking about this I'm, I'm thinking of the patterns in Orwell and one of the things that I had great trouble resisting uh, when I when I edited The Clergyman's Daughter to the same series that, you, that you've done Homage to Catalonia for, was resisting pattern hunting. Um, because I find Orwell this, this great writer of, of networked images and sort of recurrent, like waves of images. I mean, you've spoken already about how you can sort of track the development of his writing in real time and the improvements he makes to it. To me, the same thing is happening as part of that effort. 
with with patterns, you know, sort of repeated imagery that's given a slightly different emphasis. And so I was just wondering if you, if we could just move on now to talking about the process of actually editing homage to Catalonia and, and what what challenges are involved in that. You know, is it, in your view, is it a different kind of book to edit because of the political complexity or do the stylistic similarities and sort of the, the, the building upon earlier works that built into the book, does that make it slightly easier to edit in some ways? I mean, how did you find editing the book? It was it was a fascinating process. It was it was it was quite a difficult process in that, as you say, there's so much historical and political background to to understand before you can really fully get inside what's happening in the book. My my mission as a, as an editor of this edition was to do all that work for the reader, so that when as a reader you come to the book for the first time, you don't have to. Google things and 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 kind of uh, worry or wonder about what's going on here in terms of these warring factions within the Republican side in the in the war in Spain and so on. That actually all that's there for you in in the notes, and so you can just actually appreciate the book as a book. And I think it's a book that actually really benefits from having those kinds of notes because um, Orwell himself felt the need to explain what was going on to his readers too, because it was incredibly complicated struggle. And uh, he he included two chapters in the book which try to explain that all the different factions and all the different elements to this this kind of internecine war which broke out between between the factions that were supposedly on on the same side between the anti-fascist factions there were a whole other layer of conflicts going on. So all himself wrote uh, a couple of chapters where he tried to explain those things, but then he he almost had second thoughts about that and later on. He he wrote a, a a note to 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 editors of the future, saying if you get a chance, it would be really good to take these chapters out because they just slow the book down and they you know hard to get through. Even in as it was published at the time, he begins the the first of those explanatory chapters with this is going to be I'm paraphrasing, but basically this is going to be boring, so don't feel you need to read it if you don't want to, <laughs> which is a is a kind of is a it's interesting in lots of ways. It's a strange tactic uh, as a writer to put that in one of your books, but um, also I think it it really tells you something about the kind of reader that Orwell wanted to reach, the kind of person he thought might read the book, and the kind of person he would like to read the book, which was somebody who wasn't necessarily well versed in the intricacies of of kind of of communist communist factionalism and so on but that you know he he wanted a book that actually did uh, did work as a book that had had a momentum to it the problem then as an editor is whether or not you follow his instructions because traditionally when editing an edition of something you would only really make the changes that had happened in the author's lifetime that they had seen through into print themselves because then you could be sure that they really meant it and that they really wanted it but with with homage to catalonia partly because Orwell's life was cut so short and partly because he's so incredibly emphatic and says repeatedly that he would like these chapters to be moved, that it becomes quite difficult to ignore those very clearly stated wishes. Um, and so what I've done in common with with um, the previous editor, Peter Davison, who, who, um, who was the first editor to do this, I have moved those chapters into an appendix so that they're still there. You can still read them. But that the first time reader of the book and somebody who's reading the book for, for pleasure or, for, or because they're interested in an Orwell will be able to kind of understand or experience the momentum and experience the book the way Orwell 
felt it should be experienced by by the casual reader, as as he would have put it. So that's you know that that posthumous instruction was something that I I did I pondered for quite a long time and changed my mind about for a couple of times, but in the end I felt that I couldn't really ignore his instructions. I think that he was so clear uh, he knew exactly what he wanted. So yeah, I think the complexity of the Spanish Civil War itself was something that bothered Orwell as he was writing, and it it will it will continue to bother any future editors of his work of this particular work because there is there's a lot to get your head around and it's as i say my i felt it was my duty to to understand it thoroughly so that i could explain it as clearly as possible so that i'd, I'd done the work in advance for anybody coming to the book for the first time uh, anthony beaver the historian has a has a good line somewhere about the spanish civil war where he says that it's one of those conflicts that actually suffers by being simplified as it's explained and is and is very difficult to to boil down in an accurate way I mean, I think you do a marvellous job of that in the in the edition because it's quite a feat. You know, I was I was reading it and thinking, wow, you know, this is this is just extremely on point and very 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 precisely done. So I think you know you've done a brilliant service of doing that to, for for readers. So yeah, you you definitely succeeded, and I think all world would be would be very proud. It's it's difficult, isn't it? Because you can sometimes feel as an editor that the the author watching you, and and that brings its own burdens. I don't know. Did you feel that in relation to what you've just been talking about? I d- yeah, I do because I mean, as we as we've discussed already, Orwell was a very deliberate writer. He knew what he was doing. He was he was an absolute expert, and so I felt a great responsibility to him, as I feel also in the in the writing of 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 the book I'm writing about him and his illness, that he he has a very strong presence. You really feel who Orwell is. That that kind of character and personality comes through so strongly. That yeah, it's 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 hard not to to feel that you have a responsibility to to explain that. But you know, but also to to acknowledge that he he didn't always get things right. You know, some of his his pronouncements on on the war in Spain were wrong, and later historians have been able to kind of show that he he kind of misunderstood various things. And so there's also a responsibility to to correct that. But I think one of the things that he said that was most useful to me when I was trying to explain the, the many layered history of this war was that really you have to see it as a three-way conflict that the idea that it's just the fascists against the anti-fascists is is wrong and that actually there was the fascists on one side there were the communists as he calls them the Stalinists um, as we'd call them now on the other and then there were the the Trotskyists uh, as, as they're sometimes called the anarchists who had a completely different uh, interpretation of what communism was, what communism should be, and never the twain should meet between between the the anarchists and the Stalinists. They were absolutely there was almost nothing that they agreed on. <laughs> when you see it as a as a three way conflict, then that's when it falls into place because that's going to make anything complicated. Quite a lot of historians who've written about Orwell have noticed actually they 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 tend either by implication to marginalise him by mentioning him just in passing. Uh, or they get very agitated about about homage to Catalonia and and do sort of the reverse move, which is to say, you know, almost point by point. Well, here's how he got it wrong, and, and one of the, uh, or rather, here's you know how his very particular experience of that war skewed what he wrote about. One of the things I like in your introduction, you know, among many other things, is that you you sort of refuse that choice. You just say, well. That's in some ways the wrong way to think about it. Why not think about it as an impressionistic word as well? You know, as something that is written by someone in a very particular place from a, from a particular angle. I think that that is probably the most 
generous and generative way of reading the text because it's it is about him being sort of there almost on his own you know he's not Eileen's there with him and and also he's part of a group you know he has comrades and things but but in the way he presents himself it's it's it, it, it at times feels like that and and I and I wondered then whether you had similar feelings about his other works in a similar mould, so Down and Out in Paris and London and The Road to Wigan Pier, they, they have also been criticised for being subjective and skewed and partial. But there's a value in that, no? Down and Out in Paris and London, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very very much a kind of, um, I suppose you'd call it a kind of auto-fiction, you know, th- th- there, is, there is elements of, of obviously, of, of actual lived experience there but he takes tremendous liberties with you know with what happened and and he deliberately kind of sets out to make it to make it as literary as possible I think in that text Uh, you know that's a very early example of him experimenting with what a writer can can do Um, so he places himself into those two worlds of the of the of the plongeur in Paris and the the down and out uh, sort of tramp uh, in in England and he he sort of then just translates that that experience in 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 a fairly sort of in a fairly free way into something that makes sense that has a certain balance and a kind of literary quality. I think the road to Wigan Pier is slightly different in that that was commissioned as a piece of reportage in a much more serious way, and it is indeed kind of larded with statistics and kind of lists of you know what what exactly miners earn in a week and what their rent is and so on. He, he takes the trouble to, to do, the, do the journalistic thing of actually tracking down facts and presenting them. Although, of course, especially since we have his surviving diaries of his trip to, to, the, to the north, we can see where he has slightly kind of tweaked things and made things a little bit more uh, literary. But in general, I think that that, that, is, the, that is the book where he he feels most responsibility as a journalist with a commission who has to who has to kind of report what he sees uh, as truly as possible but then of course he adds on a, a whole extra section where he just gets on his soapbox and and sort of lambasts the left for for not not doing the right things in order to ameliorate the terrible conditions that he's that he's discovered um so he he kind of ha- he has his cake and eat it a, a bit with that text but I mean, that was that was the book he was writing just as he was about to leave for Spain. It came out while he was in Spain. And it's really sort of interesting to to speculate that he may have thought he was going to Spain to write a book like that, where he was going to collect facts. He was going to present a very, uh, a very lucid and factual account. Um, But that completely fell apart as soon as he got to Spain and he realised what he got himself into, which was something that was impossible to have that journalistic distance from that that was not going to he was not going to survive. And also, I think it's important to to remember that in Spain, he was criticised openly by his comrades in arms for being a, for being a bit of a tourist, for being a journalist, somebody who wasn't really serious, who was just there to gather material. You know, what, was his, what, were, what were his political credentials? Surely he'd gone to Eton. Wasn't he just some sort of posho that was just kind of that was just, you know, there to 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 have a have a kind of experience that he could write about, and he felt that very keenly. He felt very sort of, he felt very embarrassed about that. I think it, it obviously bothered him enough um, that he referred to it several times when he came back that that these accusations had been thrown at him, and then continued to be thro- thrown at him when he wrote a book which was um, which was critical 
of the communist, the Republican government that completely enraged the supporters of, of that uh, of that uh, government. And uh, he was really ostracised from leftist circles at that point. But but yeah, I think it's it's important to remember that actually politically he was sort of to the left of Stalin. He wasn't he wasn't a kind of he wasn't coming at the idea of Stalinism from a right wing or, or a kind of or a centrist point of view. He was saying that Stalin wasn't communist enough. He wasn't enough of a revolutionary. That that the that the, the real revolution had been stalled, and that the idea of uh, of sort of state capitalism, which Stalin was was developing, was completely completely sort of against. Was completely beside the point of what uh, what a workers' revolution ought to be doing, which was collectivizing everything and having a kind of anarcho syndicalist approach. So yes, I've I've slightly kind of got got off the point there, but um, I can't remember what the question was now. <laughs> no, 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 no. You, you, you've very, very sort of helpfully drawn quite a lot of threads together there. I, I mean, as we've been talking and as you've been explaining things, it's increasingly clear that this is all part of a sort of developing uh, emphasis in, in Orwell's life as much as his writing, as he's coming to terms with something of, well, the implications of a word that you used a moment or two ago, which is truth, and sort of the status of truth and who has access to it and who gets to patrol where and when it's delivered to people and the sort of the media almost through which it's articulated is you know homage to catalonia has a very obvious preoccupation with truth could you say more about that he he talks all through the book about how this is just his point of view this is just his eyewitness account um and that the reader should be careful of that that you know he's he's not claiming to see the whole picture and part of the reason he he writes in that vein is because when he finally did get out of Spain, uh, which was quite a nail-biting experience for him, uh, and sat down back in the safety of England to write the book, he had he had to rely on his memory because his many of his papers and his diaries and his his photographs had been stolen or had been confiscated. So he didn't have that kind of documentary evidence of his own, uh, and so naturally he turned to. The newspapers and to other sources of information to, to back up the memories that he had. And what he found to his horror was that whole incidents that he had experienced firsthand had not made it into the papers at all in England, that they that there were whole sort of um, whole aspects of the war which had been completely either erased or had been retold, had been lied about as far as he was concerned, had been turned into propaganda. And he was completely appalled by that. And so he he did feel like he was a lone voice speaking out. He felt that he had to, despite the fact that he only had his own personal memories to rely on, he felt that it was very important that those memories should be recorded, you know, while they were fresh in his mind and while while the war was still going on. He was writing with his comrades still in prison for, 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 being, for being anarchists. And the war was very far from from over it was going very badly for the republican side and there was um you know there was all well could could see that things were not going to end well in that war so yeah so he had this his this strong sense that truth had been lost that truth that he thought he was experiencing in his body as we've talked about before in his personal experience of the the mud and the hunger and the sweat and the and the tears and the blood that was being kind of steamrolled by this mechanical, impersonal, propagandistic discourse, which was completely 
erasing the real struggles and the real bravery and the real battles that he had fought in alongside comrades that he respected and who he felt were bravely defended an ideal which he also believed in he couldn't believe that that truth could be so fragile he he was he was it was for him a complete sort of crisis he he had started out in the road to Wigan Pier as somebody who thought you could just you if you recorded the facts and put them in a book they would be known and that would be simple in Spain you, you couldn't you couldn't record the facts anymore because your notebooks had been confiscated and when you tried to turn to the other types of public record, your experiences were completely erased. And he that was something that he never really recovered from uh, in terms of his political ideals, but which became then the most urgent subject of his writing. Uh, and clearly, you can see exactly how that happens in Animal Farm and in 1984. That's that's what he's writing about. He's writing about the, the terrible moment of realisation that the truth could just be snuffed out so easily he, he could he he was he felt that that was that that was an absolute tragedy that it was urgently going to be going to be the ruin of civilization quite literally he talks in one of his essays about the that erasure of the truth as as being something that he's more afraid of than bombs he he knew that a world war was on its way that a, a wider war against fascism was coming and that there would be bloodshed and terrible destruction but the destruction of the truth was really what frightened him. And uh, he means that. He's he's terrified of that. Um, and I think that comes through in everything else that he writes after Spain. For that very reason, do you think Homage to Catalonia is his most important book? I do think it's a really vital book. It's vital for understanding Orwell. If, uh, you know, if you're going to read any Orwell, I would suggest read Homage to Catalonia if you're curious about what makes him the writer that he is in you know especially in his masterpieces in animal farm in 1984 uh, but also just read it on its own account because it, it you know we've been talking about the very serious issues that it tackles but it's also as we've said a very well crafted it's it's a it's a very readable book and it's a unique insight i think into a moment in history which shaped the 20th century but also it's, it's as close as you'll ever get to Orwell the man Orwell the the, the person um, it's it's the only the only book that really discusses his relationship with his wife, for instance. It discusses his encounter with death, uh, and he he talks in detail about how he experiences things in his own body in a way that he just doesn't do anywhere else. Everywhere else, it's ventriloquized into into other characters or theorized into a into a political statement. Homage to Catalonia is where all of that is is kind of laid bare and it's 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 a very moving document for that reason well i completely agree thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it i really appreciate it and this has been a really enjoyable conversation thank you thank you very much i've really enjoyed it too so thank you for inviting me